Jeremiah. We have been taking pretty good bites each time, trying to maintain the unity of the book to understand and apply that which is applicable to us as we go through this book. This morning we'll actually cover chapters 30 through 33. So to begin, chapter 30, verse 1, Jeremiah 30, verse 1, the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people, Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. Now down to verse 18, chapter 30. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound and the palace shall stand where it used to be. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving and the voices of those who celebrate. I will multiply them and they shall not be few. I will make them honored and they shall not be small. Their children shall be as they were of old and their congregation shall be established before me and I will punish all who oppress them. Their prince shall be one of themselves. Their ruler shall come out from their midst. I will make him draw near and he shall approach me for who would dare of himself to approach me, declares the Lord. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. Chapter 31, verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Chapter 32, verse 37. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I drove them in my anger and my wrath and great indignation. I will bring them back to this place and I will make them dwell in safety and they shall be my people and I will be their God. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of the children after them. I will make them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them and I'll put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me 
I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in the land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. And then chapter 33, at verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. Sounds a lot like Isaiah. And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved. And Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it shall be called, the Lord, our righteousness. This is the word of our God. Let's pray. Grant to us now, Father, that we hear this well, that we receive it as your word, and that by your word and your spirit, you apply this to us. Oh, Father, may we be wise builders this day, for we pray it in Christ's name. Pain, difficulty, struggle. Sometimes things are hard. Happened this week to me again. I don't want you to be alarmed. It wasn't that big a deal. But a fluorescent fixture which I had installed some years ago in our laundry room began to malfunction. So I took it upon myself to attempt a repair. I wasn't cognizant of the fact that the fixture had gone homicidal. The ballast had not only failed, it was trying to send current through me even when the switch was off. I pondered an exorcism that determined that maybe the best conclusion was to end the relationship with the fixture with extreme prejudice. And then I went forth to find a replacement. Going into a lighting section of a major retailer is a daunting experience all by itself. There's not a lot of fluorescent fixtures left. Lots of stuff that's LED. I'm always nervous when you have to spell something. Finally concluded with the aid of an associate there what was the best thing to get? And I took it home. Now, according to the guys on YouTube, this should have been an extraordinarily simple project. They are all liars. <laughs> all of them. Of course, my circumstances were not precisely theirs. There were some complications not least of which is that I was involved. It would probably have been a good idea to get somebody to assist me, but there are those moments in a man's life when he must, for good or for ill, 
take on the task himself. I won't say it was a terrible experience. Now, I will say that my dear wife, while appreciative, did occasionally express concern for my health and also give me a something of a sideways look, which I've learned over the years expresses both amusement and a calculation of my current life insurance benefits. <laughs> Nonetheless, I prevailed. The fixture is installed, bestows extraordinary illumination. I needed nothing more than a prescription dose of Advil, a night's sleep, and I was nearly 60% recovered by the next day. Now, that bit of humor at my expense does have illustrative function. Through pain, in this case, by the sweat of thy brow, <laughs> you'll labor, you'll do things. Came a good outcome, light. What we see this morning in Jeremiah is certainly eternally far more important but addresses the reality that through pain, God does good things. Not in spite of pain, not separated from pain, but through pain. The most common illustration of this in life experience, we would say, would likely be the matter of childbirth. Childbirth comes with pain. Pain is part of the project. It's not that pain is different from giving birth. But everything about that drives toward the joy of the child. It is very much a reality in biblical teaching that pain and suffering are not seen as somehow separate from blessing and comfort, but it's actually through pain and suffering that blessing, comfort, and salvation actually come. What we look at this morning is what could well be considered truly the heart of Jeremiah's prophecy, these four chapters. In fact, chapter 31 is so vitally important that we will next week, Lord willing, Come back and look at the 31st chapter in much greater detail. But for the moment, as we think about Jeremiah and his friend Baruch, gathering and putting together this book of prophecies, he gathers this section that some call the book of consolation. Now after everything in Jeremiah that has been so dark, when you get to chapters 30 to 33, while there's still darkness, there's a lot of light. There's some wondrous things here. It can seem that suffering is unrelenting and relief nowhere to be found and that it's absolutely opposed to hope and help and rescue. But my friend, it is through suffering the Lord saves his people. It is through suffering the Lord saves, rescues His people. Let's consider this first. The 30th chapter. 
Through pain comes understanding. Now we're told in the early part of the chapter, verse 2, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, write in a book all the words that I've spoken to you. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I'll bring them back to the land I gave to the fathers, and they shall take possession of it. Let me point out first, notice in this place, he references both Israel, the northern kingdom, already gone into captivity, and Judah, the southern kingdom, who's about to go into captivity. And the promises are not for just Judah. The promises are for Judah and Israel that they would ultimately be reunited into a single people and the Lord would rescue them. But here is the pivot in the chapter. Write in a book all the words. Why a book? Why take the time and the trouble to write it all down? Because when the Lord fulfills His promise here, Jeremiah is not going to be alive to explain it to them. He'll not be around to offer commentary. He'll not be around to say, told you so. He has to think of a successive generation who's going to be living and born in this captivity who will then long to come to a place they've never been and wonder if there's any reason to have hope. So Jeremiah's prophecy is written down. The next generation needs to know what has happened and why. My brothers and sisters, when you see something in the text like this, write it down. You ought to stop for a moment and bow your head and rejoice that the Lord wrote it down. You and I would know nothing were it not for the fact that there is a written record. We'll not dally into the matter and diverge ourselves into the matter of the inspiration of Scripture and the written text of the Word. But my friend, this is found throughout the Scriptures that the Lord ordained it be written down and what is written is for our good. They needed to know that the judgment had brought them into captivity. They needed to know that the sins of their ancestors, what they were, and the consequences, so they wouldn't do it themselves. The next generation needed to hear this. They also needed to know the pain was not an end in itself. The pain had purpose. In the 30th chapter, and I couldn't help, you may have noted this at verse six that wouldn't be so amusing were not the time in which we now live ask now and see can a man bear a child apparently jeremiah didn't understand about woke Um, why then do i see every man with his hand on his stomach like a woman in labor why is every face turned pale he's using an imagery here of anxiety Everybody's worried, they're upset, they're terrified. And my friend, you should be. Judgment should humble. Judgment should be painful. But that's not the end. And he knows how they're going to respond. They're going to say, but we're far from home. What does he say in verse 10? Then fear not, O Jacob. And Jacob is just a summary way of speaking of Judah and Israel. 
Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Well, we're broken and we're sick. Verse 17, I will restore health to you and your wounds I will heal, declares the Lord, because they have called you an outcast. It is Zion for whom no one cares. What's the promise? Restoring of health. We're, we just don't think anything will ever be the same again. Look at verse 18. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound. The palace shall stand where it used to be. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving and the voices of those who celebrate. I'll multiply them. They shall not be few. I'll make them honored and they shall not be small. Everything in here is the promise of a great hope. And look at verse 22. You shall be my people, I will be your God. My friend, over and over again, this is repeated in this section. They had behaved so wretchedly that he had divorced them. They had behaved so poorly, he was sending them off into captivity. And yet his promise is he would restore them. The fierce anger of the Lord will come, but that's not the end. Now, brothers and sisters, we see this in a much more vivid way and a much more horrific way. When you come past the era of the New Testament and you come toward the end of the first century A.D. and the destruction of Jerusalem and everything that was promised in terms of the curse and destruction falls in such a way that Israel does not recover its national identity for nearly two millennia. I shan't wander far into that, but there ought to be in this an understanding. The Lord is always seeking to do redemption. And the promise of the great prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ, the hope was, believe in him and you'll avoid all of this destruction. But when they refused to believe in the Lord's own Messiah, the Son of God walking on earth, the covenant curses come pouring down without any mercy, without any relenting. As bad as it was in Jeremiah's day, what will happen in the first century shall make it pale in comparison. Friends, in terms of our own lives, not only does the Lord take us through painful things, He reminds us there is purpose in what He does. Second Corinthians 12, Paul talks about the fellow who got caught up into the third heaven. Saw things a man ought not see, heard things that's not lawful for a man to hear, and he says, I would glory in such a one. But, verse 7, keep, to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, 
a messenger of Satan, to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, what's his word? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weakness. Insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. Why? For when I am weak, then I'm strong. The Lord teaches us, grants us understanding through pain. But understanding doesn't only come through pain. Through pain comes a new covenant, the 31st chapter. Now, truthfully, one of the most important texts in the entirety of the Old Testament. You look at this, and while the previous chapter gives us understanding about pain, this one shows us that the failures under the Mosaic Covenant, even the Davidic Covenant, are not permanent because there's going to be a new covenant. Now you can subdivide that 31st chapter into about nine different units of speech, and we're not going to go that deep today. You find an invitation, verse 3, it is God is husband. The Lord appeared to him from far away, I've loved you with an everlasting love, therefore I've continued my faithfulness to you, and again I will build you, and you shall be built Notice the language, O virgin Israel, again you shall adorn yourself with tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. The picture here is the Lord saying, you've been a disaster, you've been unfaithful, but I will redeem you. I will once again be husband to you. In verses 7 to 9, God is father. He'll say in verse 9, I am father to Israel, Ephraim is my firstborn. God is shepherd, verses 10 to 14, will keep him as a shepherd keeps his Locks. The rest of the chapter is about their obedient response. But the obedience is because the Lord changes the terms of the covenant. He grants not a modified Mosaic covenant, not a modified Davidic covenant, but rather an entirely new covenant. The problem with the prior covenants was not that God's demands were unreasonable. The problem with the prior covenants was not that somehow it was unrighteous. The problem with the prior covenants was there was no provision to fix us. We're the problem. The great weakness in the law is not that the law is unrighteous, it's that we are. And so the new covenant provides something. A change. And that change gives us this kind of promise. And I, I think about good old Jeremiah listening to these words. Look down at verse 27. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and the seed of beast, and it shall come to pass that as I've watched over them to pluck up and break down, to overthrow, destroy, and bring harm, so I shall watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord." You've got to know that whenever the Lord said that, Jeremiah went all the way back to what we read in the first chapter, verse 10. I set you this day over nations, over kingdoms, to pluck up, break down, destroy, and overthrow, to build and plant. Up to this point, 
the emphasis in Jeremiah has almost entirely been on pluck up, break down, destroy, overthrow. But when the new covenant comes, it will be brought into effect so that they are built and planted. The new covenant comes, and the new covenant has to come through pain. It is through pain we gain the new covenant. Well, preacher, I don't see that in chapter 31. No, but you see it in the Gospels. Luke chapter 22, verse 20. As he institutes the Lord's Supper, Jesus uses these words. Likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant. Three more words. In my blood. How is the new covenant brought about? Because the Holy Son of God, who never disobeyed his Father once, takes upon himself the guilt of his people and is punished to death for their sin. Through pain will come this new covenant. Now, not only does understanding and the new covenant come through this pain, there's a renewed hope. Now, chapter 32 is a peculiar story. Because in it, it, it opens with telling us that Jeremiah is imprisoned. He's kept in the courtyard. It's the 10th year of Zedekiah. The end is near. Um, verse 2, at that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem, and Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah. And while he's there, he gets a word from the Lord. Now here's exactly what you're looking to hear when you're imprisoned for prophesying and doing the right thing. Here's the word from the Lord. Verse 3. Behold, I'm giving a city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. Zedekiah, king of Judah, shall not escape out of the hand of the Chaldeans, but shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon, and shall speak with him face to face, and see him eye to eye. And he shall take Zedekiah to Babylon, and there he will remain until I visit him, declares the Lord. Though you fight against the Chaldeans, you shall not succeed. Okay, good, good. It's going to happen. I'll be vindicated. Then the word of the Lord came to me, Behold, verse, eight, verse 6, excuse me, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, will come to you and say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth, for the right of redemption by purchase is yours. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm reading this, and there's something here that seems really peculiar. What's the first part of the prophecy? Doom, 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 doom. Jerusalem's doomed. Judah's doomed. Everybody's doomed. Nebuchadnezzar's coming in. He's sweeping it all up. It's all doomed. And oh, by the way, your cousin's going to come to sell you a piece of land. I don't know a lot about real estate. But if the thought is, ain't nobody going to own anything once the king of uh, Babylon comes in and grabs it, this does not seem like a keen 
wonderful business deal. And yet, what does the Lord say? Uh, buy it. Verse 8. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew this was the word of the Lord. Folks, you got to know, property values are tanking all over Judah. And his cousin dresses it up in the language of the covenant, of the Mosaic covenant. You've got the right of redemption. And not only that, Jeremiah's in jail. He's imprisoned in the courtyard. He's under guard. There's a siege that's been temporarily lifted, apparently, so that his cousin, who is such a sensitive human being, that he tracks down his cousin Jeremiah in jail to offer him a chance at this land. Verse 9, I bought the field at Anathoth from Hanabel, my cousin, and weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. I have no idea. Land prices in the 6th century B.C. in Judah. While you're at war. Signed the deed, sealed it, got witnesses, weighed the money on the scales, took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms and conditions and the open copy, and I gave the deed of purchase to Barak, the son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, uh, in the presence of Hanamel, my cousin, in the presence of witnesses. You go through this whole thing. Verse 14, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take the deeds, both the sealed deed of purchase and this open, put them in an earthenware vessel that may last for a long time. Now where we get it. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. This is a visual prophecy of hope. Why would a guy in prison for prophesying the end of Judah as having no hope for anything but captivity by land? Because it's a visual promise. Verse 16, now Jeremiah is, please understand, he's still struggling with this. After I'd given the deed of purchase to Barak, the son of Neriah, I prayed to the Lord saying, Ah, Lord God, it is you who've made the heavens and the earth, and by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing's too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, Great in counsel, mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of the children of man, rewarding each one according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. You've shown signs and wonders. He goes all the way back to what the Lord did in Egypt. You gave them the land. They didn't obey you. He rehearses everything that has happened. Verse 25, yet you, O Lord God, have said to me, buy the field for money and get witnesses, though the cities given into the hands of the Chaldeans. Now, I love this. Jeremiah is trying to talk to the Lord and he's trying to talk himself through this. 
He knows the truth, and he honors God in everything he says, and he recites the whole history of Israel in this very brief prayer. Don't pick on his praying. He's better than most of us. But he gets to the end of it, and he's like, Lord, he doesn't say it exactly this way, but pretty close. Why? What is it that you have me doing here? Verse 27, behold, I'm the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too hard for me? Behold, I'm giving this city into the hands of the Chaldeans. He tells them exactly what he's doing. And then at verse 36, Now therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city, which you say it's given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them from all the countries to which I've sent them. In my anger and my wrath, my great indignation, I will bring them back to this place and will make them dwell safely. They shall be my people. I will be their God. Christian, you do grasp, do you not, the impact here? Why are you and I engaged at all in this world knowing that it's all going to burn up? Because the Lord calls us to be engaged in this world. And we don't know when the time will come that it all comes to an end. You and I are to be busily engaged doing the good we can do. Now you say, what good is done from him buying this? It was a picture, it was a demonstration that Jeremiah was not a hypocrite. He will say in one breath, it's all going to be destroyed. And in the same voice say, and one day everybody's coming back and to show you that I believe it, I'll buy land here. Even though I'll never get to own it myself. Friends, you do understand that living as a Christian at times puts you in some weird circumstances. Peculiar. About 20 years ago, in the Sudan, Muslims were kidnapping Christian boys and girls and selling them into slavery. And in the United States, some school children started hearing about it. So they began to collect money, raise money, to purchase the Christian boys and girls in Sudan from the slave traders to get them out of slavery. Now, some criticized Said so these children are being manipulated. It's too complex in the Sudan to make clear moral judgments. What if they start doing that and it encourages them to kidnap more Christian children so the money could be collected by the slave traders? They may have had a valid point, but here's the question. How would you feel if you were the child in slavery? Would you prefer they have a moral debate over whether or not to do it? Or would you prefer to be liberated from slavery? You see, folks, sometimes our pontificating and our debating needs to be put on a back shelf, if you will, and take action. Let's do something. Things can look very dark. The old hymn writer William Cowper, who wrote God Moves in Mysterious Ways, wrote these lines. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread 
are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. We don't know how the Lord may use us. And we must never use the excuse of the impending judgment of God to keep us from doing good. There are two great facts for faith here. I will bring on them the good I have promised, and I'll do it through this disaster. Verse 30, 42 of chapter 32, thus says the Lord God, just as I brought all this disaster upon this people, so I'll bring them all the good that I promised them. The Lord keeps his promises. Finally, and we are nearly done, through the pain comes understanding, the new covenant, a renewed oath, and finally fulfillment. Chapter 33 opens and we're still in the same situation. The word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah a second time, he's still shut up in the court of the guard. And it's a repetition. Destruction is certain, verses 2 to 5. Restoration is certain, verses 6 to 13. Fulfillment of my word will happen. Look at verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days, at that time, I'll cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. You see, this is prophetic. It looks forward to the Messiah. He'll execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved. Jerusalem dwells securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Verse 25. If I have not established my covenant with day and night, in the fixed order of heaven and earth, then I'll reject the offspring of Jacob and David, my servant. will not choose one of his offspring to rule over the offspring of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, for I will restore their fortunes and will have mercy on them. Now, I know we've covered a lot of material here, and it seems, like, well, it seems like it's saying two things, and it is. But the two things are saying one thing. And the one thing it says is God keeps his promise, even his painful promises. My friend, please don't for a moment buy the modern lie that somehow the God of Scripture has changed and that you can go live your life any way you want to and the Lord will simply wink and nod and say, you know, boys will be boys, girls will be girls. Not a big deal. All those Christians were way too worked up about this. Come on into the kingdom. Do not believe that lie. You see, some of you have not just built your house on sand, you've built it on sand at the edge of a cliff. And you're tempting a righteous, holy God to end your life and condemn you forever. His word of destruction is true. But oh, my friend, hear me. His word of salvation is true. Run to him. Turn to him. Believe in him. And he will rescue you. Christian, do you see this? Do you see that these things are not to be contradictions? They go together. That for you and I, it is through suffering in this world that we ultimately come to home and life and joy. 
It's not in spite of it. It's not going around it. It's through it. We act like suffering is somehow a shocker. Like nowhere in the Bible are we warned that we may suffer in this life. Hear these words. Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Believer, endure. It hurts, endure. I'm not sure what all's going on. Endure. But I got people telling me I'd get out of this. Endure. There's guys out there that say we should never suffer. Everything ought to be fun. We ought to have plenty of money and good health and all those things. Endure. May God bring judgment on liars who would for a moment tell you that it will not include suffering to gain the kingdom. Let's pray.